It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. And the very first episode of this podcast was a conversation in this studio with Nate Silver, my boss, about how data affects our lives and the big questions that we have when it comes to data and algorithms and privacy and the critical thinking that we need to do when we try and explore those things on this podcast. And now I'm joined in this very studio by my other boss, uh, my editor, Chadwick Matlin. And to cut to the chase, this is the last formal episode of What's the Point with me as the host. So, Chad, welcome to the studio. Thanks for being my editor for the last year and a half. And thanks for doing this little uh, capstone podcast or whatever Jody, you want to call it. I'm sad. I feel like I use emojis so much that all I want to do is sort of like put out the cry emoji right now. <laughs> you know, I've never used an emoji in my life. Come on. Not once. You host a data podcast and you are stubborn about emojis. Um, So look, uh, you and me and maybe my mom are perhaps the only people to have listened to every single episode (laughs) of this podcast. So we thought we would take a little bit of time right now to talk about what the show has tried to do over the last year and a half and some of the themes we've explored. But first, should we just explain why uh, this show is coming to an end or at least with me as the the regular host? Um, We don't have to be too yeah. much do you want me to do that explaining, or, or I think um, you can just sure. I mean, the basic it. gist is that, and I've mentioned this on the show before, and I've mentioned on the uh, elections podcast, but I am sort of transitioning over, still in our little family at ESPN, but I'm transitioning over to take on this big new project to make thirty for thirty podcast. It's an exciting transition. It's a very exciting transition, very intimidating transition, but we're going to be making in the spring, hopefully everyone will be able to hear them who's listening right now, audio documentaries about sports under the 30 for 30 brand. That is a big project. We've hired lots of great people. We're rolling along on that. And uh, what's the point is uh, going to come off my plate. And we should say, well, that's terribly sad. <laughs> for, for Jody Avergan completist, you will still be involved in the uh, politics podcast. That's so exactly right. You can still Monday. get your voice every week. Yeah. And also, you know, um, I guess what's the, what's the whole thing? Like you close one door and a window open or you cl- open another or whatever. But, you know, the point being there's lots of good opportunities coming from the fact that I'm not doing this every week because we're rethinking what this feed is going to be, whether we have this show that continues with someone else or whether we sort of take these ideas and these themes and turn them into a new show. Obviously, we've been playing around with this Sparks idea from our science team. That will continue. I'm still kind of helping run 538 Podcast. And I'm very much seeing this as like a really great opportunity to like, take a new step the phrase we've been using around here is that we we're sunsetting what's the point the right? implication being that the sun will almost certainly rise again Indeed. in some form for, for what's the point and this has been a lot about us but what let me add one other thought which is maybe kind of a, a broader notion that i actually think people don't end stuff enough and it's actually kind of nice like i'm sad i've really enjoyed doing this show as we'll discuss but like sometimes it's really nice to just end something and walk away and so many times People kind of like do the like running on fumes mm-hmm. thing, uh, and we have the luxury here, frankly, to um, say, okay, that was fun. Uh, there's other opportunities, and we're going to move on and do something really cool with the space that this frees up. So I'm psyched about that. So today, uh, you and me, let's look back a little bit. We're not going to do like a clips show or like a remember <laughs> when thing, but um, we've both been thinking about some of the big themes and some of the big lessons that we've learned about on this show. So uh, where do you where do you want to start? I think when we first started thinking about the show, we had this we had this thought that data had become a part of culture, basically, and a part of our day to day lives in, in a very particular way, and that there were some people writing about it really inter- uh, really well and and with really interesting ideas, but we hadn't really found the space where people could engage and wrestle with what 
what it meant for data to pervade so much of American, in particular society, and you obviously spoke about international issues occasionally as well. And so I just want to start with a broader question. Now that you've thought about this for <laughs> you know a year and a half or whatever it's been, 60 plus episodes, do you think data is a force for good oh, or, for, or for, or you know, is it, or is it making things worse overall? Uh, that is, I mean, that's, you know, that's the hardest question. Good for you to lead with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I will say that I had a sense, as you said, that that a show about data was actually a very broad uh, charge and that we could do almost everything. And I was continually surprised at like the range of conversations and the range of sort of worlds that we could dip into and say, how is data affecting this world? So, you know, there's, we did farming, we did birds, we did obviously like online security and privacy, we did art, uh, we did criminal justice, you know, it's just like you can kind of go to any world and say, there's this rush to bring big data into it and efficiency through algorithms into it. Often, I found that the lesson was about the misguided rush in those particular worlds. Misguided rush towards bringing data into the world. Yes. So this seductive nature of, oh, we can just be more efficient. All we need to do is just gather tons of data about our little world. All we need to do is run some algorithms and all of a sudden, you know, the answers will be there. And so often... I found that the lessons of this podcast were about kind of like the pitfalls of that as opposed to all the wonderful efficiencies that can come from data-driven decision-making. Now, that said, I think that's because we're in this moment where we're figuring exactly that out. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, Nate, our boss, is somewhat responsible for that, right? Like data is sexy right now. That's probably the only time that that word has been used. <laughs> in the, um, but uh and so there's, there's just this really interesting transition period now. You know, 10, 15 years from now, we'll probably will all be so – hopefully, we'll be so data literate that we understand the pitfalls when we, when we rush into it. So but you're optimistic right now, that these are growing pains essentially and that we are, we are on a path towards progress of liter- data literacy. I'd like to think so or at least I am optimistic in that we can identify kind of some of the big challenges that will hopefully let us be data li- literate and responsible in – uh, and kind of how we use algorithms in whatever world we happen to live in. So let me push you a bit on that, especially given your other work with the politics podcast. I mean, we have seen essentially evidence literacy on the yeah. decline, it seems, if you believe the sort of um, rush of news stories about fake news. And if you, if you think there has been really a, a causation link between fake news and the way people think about the world, if not the way that they vote. And so... And yet you're still voicing optimism that we can have data literacy, which to me is like an extra layer of complexity on top of just straight evidence literacy. Yeah. One is, does does do facts exist, whether they be numbers or, or sort of actions that, or events that have happened? And the next is when we zoom out and look at all the facts, all the numbers, all the events, you know, what, what holistically could, could we quantify and say might be the truth or the evidence within there? Yeah. So maybe I'm just, you know, I'm an optimistic person by nature. So when I see like real problems, I think of them as like, well, we need to talk about them and we need to solve them. I mean, you know, in the wake of this election, one of my main thoughts has been a very what's the pointy thought, which is like this election really showed the challenges of critical thinking, of evidence-based information, of the sort of filter bubbles that we've created for ourselves and and the the way that we start to unwind that so many of the conversations on the show have come back to that simple thing. And actually, the one the one phrase that has been rattling in my brain thinking back about this show was something that Neil deGrasse Tyson said on, I think, the second, second, episode, episode, yeah. the second episode of the show. And he said, are you wired for doubt? That was his kind of like theory of everything is if, you, you know, are you wired for doubt or are you more 
credulous and letting confirmation bias sneak in and all of those things. And to me, like every conversation on the show was circling around that central question is, you know, are you wired for doubt? I don't want to dwell on this too much longer, but I think for, for some, the doubt is the bias in, you know, in some ways where, sure. you know, if you think that the, the world as it's being presented to you is not the way that the world is, whether that be from a partisan prism left or right, or from the way that, that the establishment's telling you something, whatever else, you can doubt instinctively on that and also have be biased because of that. Sure. So, okay, let, let, let's, let's talk a bit about those episodes that were about doubting the rush to data, as, mm-hmm. as you said. Um, you know, there was uh, the great episode you did with Joe Flood on why the Bronx really burned in the 70s and why data maybe didn't hold the answer. As, as it, Right. We, this we was the uh, New York Fire Department in the 1970s tried to, you know, use an algorithm of sorts to determine how they were going to go to f- to different fires and how they were, they were going to dispatch their limited resources. And it ended up having all sorts of deleterious ripple effects, uh, often around cl- class and race lines in terms of, you know, what led to the Bronx burning. And yeah, that was a classic example of this rush to efficiency. And that being uh, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And so it's, it's quite, in some ways, you can see that that trend line hold, and, and maybe that was a, a harbinger of, of what was to come. And so then we had um, episodes like when our colleague Walt Hickey investigated Fandango and showed that uh, the ratings on Fandango could be manipulated. And so something that we trusted as data maybe uh, was manipulated in order to make the movies look better. And so there's back to your sort right, of And there's a financial cycle. incentive there, right. of course. Um, we had uh, whether the Spotify algorithm was making us uh, better music listeners or bringing us more pleasure than discovery of our own would bring, um, how data was affecting things in the workplace uh, and changing the relationship between employers and, and their employees. And so, you know, it, it, I'm sort of curious if you think that the narrative around data has followed the narrative around a lot of technology companies. So when Google first was creating Gmail, let's say, or Google Docs, there was like, oh, wow, you know, Google is really changing the way that I that I live and, and being, a, you know, a huge benefit and a huge asset uh, to me being able to get things done or, or, or the way that I can communicate with people. And then, you know, by the nature of sort of expectations changing, we started to think of big tech corporations like Google as maybe collecting too much data on us through those tools that we're using. And it seems to me like the, the narrative around data is a bit similar. At first, it's it's the sort of uh, – it has a promise of what it can deliver mm-hmm. and then it curdles almost and, and we start to think – Yeah, or becomes uh, you know nuanced and complex in the way that the entire world is. I mean I, you know, I see that curdling. I understand that. But I see it as, as somewhat of a, a helpful conversation, right? We are now – not buying this simplistic notion that Google can go out there and say, do no harm. And I don't think Google is buying it about themselves. They're realizing that they have a huge impact and they have all sorts of competing incentives and that um, we have to have that tough conversation about the role of those things in our life. And I mean, you know, we've had so many conversations on this show about privacy and that's the one place where like, they were all very interesting conversations. I don't feel like I started with one notion of how I deal with privacy in my life and then ended with another. I mean, maybe I use, I use two-step verification now that I, your practices. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, I use two-step verification now that I didn't maybe a year and a half ago. And I maybe like 
go to incognito mode a little more. But you're but, not using ghostry or whatever that yeah, thing you know, was that you talked about. I played about. around with it. I dipped into it. But I'm, I think I'm like a lot of our listeners and probably a lot of people who work on this site in that classic s- situation of like I'm concerned about privacy. This sort of creeps me out. We've talked a lot about how that word is both like the perfect word and also just very unhelpful. But yeah, like this tracking sort of, sort of creeps me out. But I like – really like the internet experience that a lot of that provides for me. And um, to me, the important thing is that we just attend to that complexity and we talk about it and we sort of nudge it forward. And I really appreciate the Quinn Nortons and the Cash Hills of the world who are out there saying like, you need to you know, block all these algorithms that are happening behind your browser. And then I also understand and appreciate the people who are just like, I want the internet to be a place where I can do whatever I want and I'm happy with you know some people tracking me. And somewhere in the middle in that tug of war hopefully will be the right answer. And do you think the tug of war will ever stop? It seems to me like even if we get closer and closer to the right balance that those forces are always going to be tugging. For sure. For sure. And I mean they're nudging – I mean Nate said in the very first conversation we had on this podcast, he said that he felt like that tug of war was moving towards – privacy skepticism and and he cited things like the rise of telegram the rise of encrypted uh software you know the, the hubbubs that happen sometimes when you realize that a company wants all sorts of information now we're having this conversation about facebook and their role as a media enterprise uh i know a lot of journalists now are thinking about this um, as we enter a new administration that has a very adversarial stance with journalism so i do think that tug of war is moving a little more towards concern about privacy and and literacy on that front. And then I think the ultimately, to be honest, the financial incentives are going to have to align. The thing that's going to get Facebook to change its stance towards fake news is going to be when investors go to them and say, like, you have a broken experience. I don't want to give you money unless you fix this. And it's incumbent upon the consumer to push that action at all? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's incumbent upon – well, the consumers will push that through their behavior. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's incumbent upon thinkers and journalists and whatever other haughty world you want to talk about to spark those conversations. And your point about behavior, I think, makes a good point that actually it comes back to data in the first place, which is this isn't, from where I sit at least, the kind of thing that people are going to be activists marching the street about. But – Instead, the companies are going to make decisions based on looking at metrics of of the way the behavior works. And so the data, the stance on data, on the way that these companies use data and use privacy is going to be determined by the data itself. (laughs) It's a bit of a catch-22, right? The very data that would show you that it's broken is the data that would – is sort of creating it broken. Uh, just one one note that I think is a really concrete example that we didn't talk about on this this show but is worth mentioning now is Twitter over the election – revealed itself to be a bit of a swamp in some ways and that they revealed that they could not deal with spam and abuse in 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 some fundamental ways and it was a really bad problem and that led to direct financial implications a lot of people left twitter and our parent company disney had this moment where they were going to buy twitter and they did not and i think it was directly related reportedly and i think it was directly related to the fact that Twitter hasn't figured this out. And so that's just a clear moment of like the financial incentives and the larger concerns meet each other. And then that's what gets companies to act. And we'll see what happens. We'll get back to the conversation in a minute. But first, a word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. 
not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best ingredients from their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And you can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. You can choose delivery options that fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash point. That's blueapron.com slash point. Again, blueapron.com slash point. Okay, back to the show. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about how data has highlighted and perhaps further disparities um, mm-hmm. because I think that's been a, a theme of, of several of the shows that, that you did. Um, uh, on, let, let's stick to the highlighting part first. I'm curious to sort of hear what you think about where this should go going forward. But um, you did several episodes on criminal justice database collection um, around the Black Lives Matter movement, around police violence, um, uh, violence perpetrated by police and and who it was perpetrated against, and data show that it was disproportionately perpetrated against African Americans um, and people of color, and so that seems to be the 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 promising part about data, which is that when we do quantify things, if we quantify them responsibly, and and you mm-hmm. continue to question and doubt the way that it's been put together in, in a constructive way, that we can start to show things about society that we wouldn't know otherwise. Is that a fair read from those? Episodes? Yeah, and I mean that's you know I I think a lot of the shows have talk to basically data journalists. I mean, sometimes they're, they're activists like Samson Youngway who's trying to collect data about police violence and sometimes there are people on our site who are um, trying to collect data about you know sentencing and so forth. Um, and to me, that's another sort of big theme is the gaps in the data are often as interesting as the data itself. And so looking at a world and saying, oh, there isn't a good database that we can compare across communities about police violence. How do we build it? And the fact that you know the first steps of that were done by amateurs, not by the government. But then eventually, as we learned last year, the Obama administration said, "Oh, you know, we're going to enact some laws here to get this together, so that we have that." And then you have the important conversation. But to get to that uh, is often a lot of work. And so those gaps are were, are really interesting to me. And then there were other episodes that were sort of about how data. Further disparities. Sure. Your co- recent conversation with Kathy O'Neill um, for her book uh, "Weapons of Math Destruction." Thank you. It, it, it's a clever title. So it's a good title. I could, it's a good be able title. To remember it. Uh, talked about Bloomberg terminals. How that might feed into economic inequality, um, since uh, there's so much data running through these terminals that only some have access to. Uh, you spoke with some of our colleagues here at 538 and our friends at the Marshall Project about predictive sentencing and how certain demographic data might uh, lead to different criminal sentencing um, for those in jail in jail and so or in prison rather and so I'm sort of curious what you made of that that flip side almost of the sure. highlighting of the disparity are they related or are they two separate processes well they're related to me the the big place where those conversations took me and I think in each conversation we, we, we tease this out is that so often an algorithm, a data based approach 
still reflects the built-in biases that were there that don't really have much to do with algorithms or math or whatever. So when we talk about predictive sentencing, which our colleague Ben Castleman wrote really well about the Marshall Project, also wrote about it, using an algorithm for to give a judge advice on whether to put someone away for a relatively minor uh, offense for a long time, all the biases that exist in our criminal justice system were fed into that algorithm. That algorithm was not a chance for whoever is making this policy to stop and re-examine their biases. And that is like – I've been in this interesting role of like I work at 538 but also been a sort of outsider looking at how this place thinks and how Nate and the others who work here think. And that to me is one of the big lessons is that – the model, the algorithms we use, the data journalism we do is not about necessarily that like tidy answer at the end. It's just, frankly, an excuse to stop and like look at all your priors, look at all the, your inputs and just evaluate it. And then just that simple exercise of like stopping and attending to all of the kind of things that are going into your work is often just enough to reveal all those biases. But when you get worlds like the Bloomberg Terminal or predictive sentencing or these other things that Kathy O'Neill and others write about, um, there was never that moment of critical thinking and critical self-assessment before the data came in. And then all of a sudden, you can justify your existing biases, not because you just kind of feel they're right, but because, oh, you have hard numbers to prove it. And that is like the most dangerous side of it. Right. The the phrase that I think we heard you know countless times on this podcast was junk in, yeah. junk out, this idea that the answers are only going to give you are only going to be of the quality of the things that that led into the answers. Yeah. Um, so, I want to talk a bit about what data can tell ourselves because I think some <laughs> of the episodes um, were about that, and my own sort of interest in in data as culture is maybe a bit of a narcissistic one, which is what can it tell me about me, but also sure. uh, what are the limitations of what it can tell me about me, and so. Uh, I mentioned that Spotify episode, for example. You know, what's that telling me about my my music taste? Let's say um, you did an episode about Yemeni cell phone data and what that told us about Yemeni culture, basically. And so the patterns of life in in Yemen, yeah. exactly. And how uh, what was it like? The, they would go silent after a drone strike, or it would light up rather after a drone right. strike, for example. Right. Um, Tom Vanderbilt spoke about his book about taste and what and what we like and why. And then there was that project around Dear Data, in which you asked what's the point listeners to to quantify themselves essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, do you feel like there is something to be learned from? quantifying or datafying ourselves or looking at a data output of our own actions that is above and beyond what we could maybe intuit on our own? All of those instances you mentioned, and um, I, I also just remember my conversation with, with Jim Hamblin of The Atlantic, who where we talked about sort of data and medicine, but all this sort of self-quantification. So you walk into a doctor's office with all of these reams of stats about yourself. But like all of those, whether it's your musical taste, your health, uh, the patterns of your day, you know, what, whatever it is, um, the data is an opportunity to think about yourself and do some critical thinking, as I was just describing. And so I don't think that I've looked at this data and said, oh, I am X, Y, Z. And so this changes my notion of myself. I've looked at data. I've looked at the Spotify stats. I've looked at health stats. I've looked at these other things and said, oh, this is interesting. Let me use this as a chance to kind of do some critical thinking about myself. Now, I probably am the kind of person, and I think you are, and a lot of listeners probably are, who would do that critical thinking about themselves regardless. But the data 
illuminate something about ourselves as a nice framework in which to do that. In which to confront your own actions sure. that maybe you don't want to confront even if you intuit them. I, I did yeah. some writing on um, OkCupid's uh, yeah. database uh, when their uh, CEO came out with a book called Dataclism. And so uh, this book and OkCupid's data really kept coming back to things that we sort of know about our society, which is that um, there's bias in interracial, interracial dating, for example, that, that that is more difficult for users of, users of OkCupid to do than, than maybe you would like if you, if you believe that we live in a totally um, unbiased society. And, and, um, and age was a big factor in, yeah. in, in that data. And so all these things we sort of know and talk about casually around, you know, around lunch with friends, but to actually see it maybe gives you more evidence to, to do something about it. Or, or I mean, the, the dating thing, which we ta- t- have touched on a little bit on this show, but never done like a proper, you know, what is algorithmically based to dating doing to us? I have a very, I think, unpopular opinion about this, which is it's actually not really changing your behavior. You were going to sort of have the same approach to dating at whatever stage in life you were regardless. And OkCupid or Tinder or whatever just kind of like puts that into sharper relief. But if you were going to like be going on a lot of dates and not be ready to settle down at age 24, regardless of whether you were using an app or not, I think – I might be the only person who who thinks that. Everyone I know who thinks that, like, oh, this is making it you know much harder to settle down or whatever. We don't have to have that debate now. But I do think just that critical thinking moment, as you highlighted, is like, oh, well, what kind of person am I, and how is this app revealing that, as opposed to necessarily is this app changing it or not? So one of the hallmarks of what's the point were your data field field trips when you mm. went out into the into the wild to see how data was was being deployed basically and and there were three in particular that I thought back to one was your your trip to the to the to the farm in which you brought back a bushel of arugula for yeah. all of us at the office um, one was uh, out with a, a bird scientist who was who was tracking um, uh, was it bird migrations or, or just yeah. sort of where the birds were in California um, and then. Uh, Another was to the was it New York Philharmonic, which had yeah. a, uh, sort of a classical music archive and, and library that was analog in a way. Um, and so uh, I, I'm wondering what did your view or understanding of what is data change at all when you're out, you know, in in the fields of California or in the 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 stacks yeah. in the archives of the Philharmonic? Well, I mean, getting out. I mean, first, there's just a pure like radio reason for this, which is like, it's nice to have tape from outside of a studio. And I wish I'd been able to get outside of the studio more. Uh, but it's tough to like bring an, an algorithm to life or to, to, to sound life uh, in this way. But I, those trips and my thinking about that, like really did change my notion of I walk around now and I'm, and I want to know about all the sort of hidden algorithms that are dictating the world I'm seeing. And sometimes they're like actually algorithms that determine whether my train is on time or my train is late. And sometimes they're more really broadly defined algorithms like when it starts raining, all of the people who sell umbrellas come out onto the street and then the price goes up a little bit because the market forces have changed a little bit, you know, but just like being attuned to all of the, the forces and all the calculations that are being made. This show has done that for me. Okay, Jody, I think I think that exhausts yeah, my questions. That seems-
that's, I'm, I'm pretty exhausted too. If that's any <laughs> consolation, no. Um, so, what's next for the feed? Just for those who, yeah. who are subscribed and, and shouldn't go anywhere because we, we're still putting more content in here. Yeah. So, as as we said, like this is really a chance for us to rethink. We're gonna kind of pause. What's the point? Uh, I'm not gonna be hosting any more episodes formally, but we do have Sparks, and we have a great Sparks coming out next week. A blockbuster. Yeah, it's gonna be really great. And then we actually are gonna come back with a bit of a capstone or a coda or, coda or, or whatever we were arguing about what word to use <laughs> um around this dear data project that you mentioned which was my favorite thing that we did because it was such a you know beautiful project and we did this community crowdsourcing thing where people sent us all these letters and we're actually finding a way to put them online and make sure everyone sees them and then we'll do a little something in the feed itself to kind of wrap that up and then sparks will continue and in the next few months we will occasionally we'll drop some sort of past what's the point episodes in here to keep this feed active and then we will be back with something and we have all sorts of great ideas about how we're going to continue to talk about these issues like i said i think um these questions are only becoming more and more important in this in this moment in our country in our world and so we will continue to find ways to address them and sticking with this feed is a good way to stay up to speed this feed will will be active i just won't be here every week hosting a conversation but again people can still hear your dulcet tones over the podcast. oh yeah and then you know uh when uh the 30 for 30 podcast comes right. out in the spring that'll be a whole new thing and people will definitely hear about that excellent uh all right jody you want to you want to give one final credits run yeah i'm not going to do a proper credits like i do but um i just want to say some thank yous so uh you know i'm going to write off a bunch of names and hopefully i know a lot of people skip through this stuff at the end of the podcast <laughs> but, but take a listen because these are some of the people who've been really helpful and wonderful in making this show tick so i'm going to start with rishikesh hereway who wrote the music to this podcast i genuinely think it's the best theme song in podcasting <laughs> and wish you did a great job and you can go download it as i say at the end of every show uh, on our website we've had some amazing interns asta chatterveti sarah patterson jonathan yales lucina malesio andrew wagner have been wonderful and have really had a big part in this show joel warner was like uh, my original partner in crime on this helped design the sound and think about just the flow and the pacing and mix this show. So thank you to Joel. Then, of course, as the folks in the studio, Tony Chow, Jorge Estrada, Ryan Nantel have been really wonderful. Kate LaRue, Gus Wazarek, Kate Elazgui have done artwork and design. Last year at this time, we did these data awards and this beautiful layout, but they also designed the logo and they've just been wonderful and supportive. Uh, I can't name them all, but there's tons of tape sinkers and people around the country who've helped sort of do production work here and there and spot work. So I appreciate everyone shipping on that front. And then, of course, there is the editorial infrastructure around here. Mostly you, Chadwick Mellon. Thank you very much for listening to this show each week and giving me notes and helping nudge pleasure. it along. Total pleasure. And that goes for the staff here at 538 as well who were on the show as guests or just gave notes and suggestions behind the scenes or helped build the website. Everyone really did chip in. And then there's this community of listeners. Podcasts really are magic in this way. There's a real connection among listeners. And all I can say is that I really felt it from my end of the microphone. That's what I'm really in it for, to try and build a community and take on some interesting problems together. So I'm really honored and moved that people took the time to listen and engage. Thank you very much. 
Okay, that's it. That's the end of What's the Point with me, Jody Avergan, as the host. You can still send me emails at podcasts at 538.com and do stay subscribed to this feed for Sparks and then some cool new things in the coming weeks and months. I promise we have some great big ideas in store. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon.